Um, I'm not Charlene Brown. Uh, I'm Joe Longrino. Uh, Charlene uh, and I met each other at the University of Virginia 12 years ago, which makes me feel old. Um, it was my first year, and it was her second year. And I remember Charlene as one of the first people to greet me. Um, and then it quickly became evident that she was kind of a big deal. Um, she was a leader both in informal and formal ways on campus. Uh, she was integral to welcoming new students, but she was also very important to get students who had been on campus for a, a long time to think about how Christian life and Christian community should look on campus. She became the president of the Black Campus Ministry at UVA, um, and she was also uh, instrumental in forming a Bible study where several leaders and students from across campus got to talk about uh, racial reconciliation because uh, surprisingly, there was work on race relations to do in Charlottesville, uh, even 10 years ago. Um, and then Charlene made her way down to Duke Divinity School. She blazed the trail for the hundreds of other UVA students who seem to pour down here every year. Um, she did a, a certificate in race theology and ethics there. Uh, and as Chris told you, she was the president of the Duke's uh, Divinity School government. I was so busy, I didn't even remember that. I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry, Sean. Um, okay, yeah, I have, Duke uh, keeps you busy. Um, and then uh, her leadership roles just seem to continue on and on. In recent years, she's been the regional director for Black Campus Ministries. Uh, and as the InterVarsity site describes her, she is a catalytic influence. I think that's an apt summary of her work. And they recognized her leadership ability so much that now she is the national uh, director or the director of national, help me get the order right, the national director, national director for Black Campus Ministries. So seems like she keeps going up the ladder and who knows where that will stop. Um, but today I saw the title of her sermon uh, is about humility. So uh, this whole, although she has climbed this ladder, she has uh, still been thinking all about the importance of humility. So we look forward very much to that. And uh, before she comes up here, uh, Stephanie Homer is going to read the scripture for us. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any sharing in the spirit, any sympathy, complete my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united and agreeing with each other. Don't do anything for selfish purpose, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth and under the earth, might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the word of the Lord. 
Good morning, Oak Church. Morning. I uh, I'm sweating because I just had this mad dash to the bathroom. Like, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> Did a couple laps around the fellowship hall. But it is a joy to be with you guys this morning. And thanks to Chris for the invitation. Um, I count it a privilege anytime I get to be with people and to share the word of God. Um, can you hear me okay? Because I, I I don't think I'm gonna hold the mic. So Chris and I were in seminary together, and it has been a gift to see this dream of a church uh, planting, a church plant turning into a reality for him, to see this community gather and put on display what it means to hope, love, and be hospitable to this neighborhood and to the greater city of Durham. So thank you for the work and the love that you guys are making known here. Um, if you don't mind, I know Joe shared a little bit about me, but I'd love for you to get a sense of who I am and why I'm here today. So when I was two years old, uh, my mom passed away. She said, uh, well, my mom passed away and my dad said, there can't be a God if God would let something like this happen. So he raised us to believe that church people just weren't smart enough and that they had to go to a place called church where a pastor would tell them what to do and how to live their lives and that we were smart enough. We didn't really need that. Uh, he told us that we did not need God. And I went through a pretty tumultuous upbringing, a rot with a lot of depression, but still managed to get A's and B's. And then I ended up at the University of Virginia. During the first few weeks of school, a number of racist incidences happened. There was a woman who was running for student council president. Her name was Daisy Lundy. Uh, she was beaten on her way home from the library around midnight. And her attacker, her attacker said, we don't want a nigger as our president. So I started uh, hanging out with a group of black students uh, because the newspaper was publishing articles that said black students do not be belong at such a prestigious university as this. I went to my first ever English class, first week of school, first class, I'm a first generation college student. And it was a writing class called Liars, Cheats and Fakes. And the professor said, well, let's name famous liars, cheats and fakes like Machiavelli, uh, Pinocchio, Abraham Lincoln, and someone said, well, all black people steal and lie. And as the only black person in my class, my teacher looked at me and said, Charlene, like, you're black. Do all of your people steal and lie? And I was like, I just sat there, like, struck. And about 30 seconds passed. I was like, is this what college is? And then packed up all my stuff and left that class. So these black students, one of the things that drew me to them, particularly as a, as a, a non-Christian and someone who wasn't following Jesus, was that they were praying and protesting. I'd never seen this before. Because in my view, Christians would go to church, they'd hang out with each other, and then they would live their lives like nothing happened. But to see that these students were caring about campus, loving campus, loving the community, and saying that we won't stand for this was a thing that drew me to them. I would learn that they cared about this campus so much that they believed that Jesus could bring change, renewal, and reconciliation. It was through their witness that I became a Christian that first semester. It was the first time that I'd seen my own ethnic identity as a black woman, that this was a gift from God. It was the first time that I'd seen proclamation of the gospel and justice tied so beautifully together. I still had questions about white people because while we were protesting the racism on campus, white students repeat repeatedly told us to just get over it. White Christians told us to forgive and forget and to move on because what they were essentially saying is ignore the injustices we face. 
But as my community of students studied scripture together, it became more and more apparent that God cares about the oppressed. And so we're not just supposed to get over it. God cares too much about the people who are hurting to just get over it. God does not see injustice and say, just get over it. If we could not place our hope in God, then where do we place our hope? So after my second year uh, in that campus ministry, I went on a summer missions project to South Africa. This was one of the key places that I encountered racism. It was amazing. And as the darkest skinned person in my group, I was treated like trash. Uh, during this time, we planted two campus ministries. We ran a Bible study and served at an AIDS orphanage, which was fantastic. And I saw Jesus at work. I also saw all the impalpable, the palpable injustice and disparities over the last 30 years uh, post-apartheid. The living conditions of black and white South Africans were so different. There was intense poverty and intense affluence, and that separates them. I left yearning to see more of God's heart for justice and reconciliation. And when I returned, I hadn't told my dad that I'd become a Christian. I just hit it. I remember printing out like Bible gateway passages and putting them into a folder that said biology so that when I went home over breaks, I could read scripture. Uh, my dad met me at the door because one of my support letters had gotten returned and he opened it up to make sure that it wasn't important. And when he opened it up, he saw that I was there not hanging out and partying with friends in South Africa, but I was there proclaiming the gospel. He met me at the door and he yelled and cursed for a long time. And at the end of that, he said, choose me or choose God. And I remember being like, God, like, okay. And he's like, well, get your stuff. He didn't say that. Get your stuff and get out. And so I packed up all my stuff and I moved back to UVA and I was sleeping on a friend's couch for about a week. And they said, Charlene, you got to do something. Like, you can't, you can't do this all year. I mean, we, we want you here, but you can't do this all year. And so I was trying to muster up what was the story that I was going to tell financial aid about why I couldn't pay my tuition. And we all knew that financial aid did not care about your story. They wanted their money. So I remember praying and just sinking into this deep depression. And finally that Friday I said, all right, I'm gonna go down to financial aid and figure this out. So I'm getting dressed and my phone rings and it's the financial aid office. And he said, is this Charlene? I was like, yeah. And they're like, we want you, uh, we just had a generous donor give a gift and you're the first recipient of this gift. It covers tuition, room and board and a monthly stipend. And I remember thinking, oh my God, God, you're real. God, you do stuff. Like, this is, this is crazy. Like, I've seen you and I've been following you, but I finally know that this is you. You are a God who cares for the fatherless, a God who cares for people when, uh, when they don't feel seen, that you've always been with. So these are the kind of experiences that have shaped my life, my work, and my ministry. Uh, after seminary, I started working for InterVarsity with a year and a half gap in there. And for the last six years, I've had the opportunity to work with students and faculty across the country. Last year, I became the national director for Black Campus Ministries. And people are usually like, what does that mean? It sounds racist. You only work with Black people. Well, let me tell you, I help InterVarsity to think uh, creatively about reaching, equipping, and developing Black students. I help us to think cross-culturally about justice and racism. I also help our movement to think strategically about how we talk and do racial reconciliation because our culture has done it so poorly. 
help them to think about this so it honors the great diversity of the black community. And my hope is that like me, black students who end up on college campuses across the country this fall will have an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a way that is attractive and meaningful. Uh, my story has deeply been shaped by the gospel and justice and in humility, learning what it means to die both to myself and to this world. I'm not very good at it, but I try every single day. And when I open, uh, why well, don't read the paper? When I open my browser <laughs> to read the news, uh, I'm just struck by Durham and Charlottesville in two places that I love deeply, right? The events on the news, right? It breaks my heart. I think white supremacy and racism must die and it has to die in the church. All right, let's jump into Philippians 2. So when Chris asked me to come during the sermon series on Philippians, I was like, what is he going to stick me with? Like Philippians 4, like the hard passage. And then he was like, no, Philippians 2. I was like, yeah, that's one of my favorite passages, right? I'm a firm believer that some of the best letters and papers uh, come from prison. Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King, and yes, even the good old Apostle Paul, right? He pens this letter to the church at Philippi in prison. I read it, and what I feel is anger, and dare I say, rage, right? I'm like, Paul, you don't get it. There's too much at stake. It's not possible, not now, not then, to be so humble that it leads to death, right? Everything about our culture says, be successful, acquire things, like just do you. Maybe this was possible back then, but come on, Paul, you don't expect us to do this now. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in the spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Jesus, you know that there's too much at stake for this to even be possible, right? In my mind, I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Paul, right? Like, this doesn't make sense. So first he says, be like-minded, right? Have the same love, be in one spirit, be in one mind. That's hard work. I can't even do that with people that I like, right? Let alone people I love, right? Not even other Christians sometimes. Paul says, I know that you've loved each other and you've loved each other well. Keep doing it. Try your best to love and to be one with one another, even in the midst of dissension and stuff that you're facing. But then he keeps going. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, think of others more highly than yourselves. Not only is Paul calling the church at Philippi to love and be with and for one another, he calls them to think about the value of others over ourselves. What a call here. What an invitation. What a ridiculous thing for Paul to ask about. Everything about our culture tells us that we should be striving for more, that we should be making ourselves known, that we should be more awesome, seeking ambition, right? That it is all about us. Because in the words of cultural theologian Beyonce, right? It's just me, myself, and I. That's all I got in the end. That's what I found out, right? 
Our culture tells us that we need to seek power, that we need to seek success, money, and influence. If we don't look out for ourselves, who will? If we don't humble brag for ourselves, right? Humble brag, it makes it better. Who will? If we don't acquire power, we'll be crushed by the powerful. If we don't have money, we will become the poor, right? If we don't win, we'll be the losers. We're obsessed with coming out on top or having things to work out our way. So a year after I graduated from Duke, I took a job at a gym making minimum wage. And I was between jobs trying to pay back student loans. Um, I cringe now because I want to qualify it for you guys. I, I was just there temporarily. It wasn't, you know, I've got all these degrees, but it was just temporary, right? Folks would come in and they would talk horribly to the staff, right? They would throw their used towels at us on their way out because they were in a hurry. And every time I found myself wanting to say, like, you don't know who I am, right? I've got degrees. Like, I've been, I went to Duke. Like, don't throw your towel. I'll throw it back at you, right? <laughs> and then I'm convicted by the Lord, right? I went home one day just thinking about myself more highly than I ought. And I was convicted by the Lord, right? Who are you and who are the other people that you work with if you think that you're better than them, right? No one deserves to be treated like Charlene, do you think of yourself more highly than you should? And I realized that all this qualifying was me trying to say, I'm better than that. I'm better than these other people. And I felt like the Lord humbled me during that time because there wasn't, in a 30-second exchange of scanning your card, there's not the time to be like, guess where I went to school, right? <laughs> so I was led to consider my sisters and my brothers above myself to actually think of them as family. And if we keep going in this passage, I think Paul gives us a glimpse of what it looks like to love well, right? He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or taken advantage of, but rather he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even to death on the cross. Jesus knows exactly what's at stake here. Christ made himself nothing, right? The God of the universe, having every right to step out of this death trap, humbles himself even unto death. Jesus is the God who takes on flesh and dwells among us. He's the one who comes as a baby and lives just like us. The one with all power is put on display like the one with no power. Everything about him looks weak. And again, I feel angry, right? Like, what I want is for this like amazing display of power from Jesus. But that's not what he does, right? Can you imagine Jesus as a kid facing bullies and like pointing his little pinky like, I can destroy you with my pinky, right? Like, I'm the God of the universe. Or like, Strange Jesus, like, nah, 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 boo, boo, like, I'm not from this world, <laughs> right? Like, obnoxious Jesus, because he's, yeah, well, he's not obnoxious, but, like, imagine Jesus being obnoxious. Or wait for it, right? Jesus on the cross, almost to the point of death, then throwing so much shade on the haters, like, literally, like, eclipse kind of shade on the haters, and taking himself off the cross and just, like, destroying all of his enemies. Like that would have been a beautiful display of strength. But no, right? Christ humbles himself 
becoming obedient to death, and then dying on a cross. We're often taught that following Jesus and being like Jesus means having a happy-go-lucky life of ease and one that is relatively pain-free. Where we've reduced coming to faith as conversion plus church plus a little bit of prayer before meals equals success, joy, money. We don't actually see this in scripture, ever. Rather, the one thing we see continually is that if we follow Jesus, right, if we imitate Christ, then death is always before us. Death is the only guarantee. And this is where we face what I like to call anti-humility or pride or arrogance, right? When we face the fear of death, the fear of not being able to project an image or identity, when we're reminded of our humanity, fear creeps in and causes us to grasp at these things that help to define us, money, power, strength, and success. We think that power and strength and success will save us from the weakness that is before us or the weakness that we feel inside of us. When I am most afraid, those are the things that I scramble for. Instead of turning to the Lord, right, the perfect example of humility and weakness, when I'm most afraid, I grasp for my stuff, right? The diploma, my bank account, the titles. That's what I try to project. But what we know is that grasping is a desperate act of grabbing something that never really was ours. We grasp it because we're afraid that if we lose it, that we'll have nothing left. And at the root of grasping is fear, a fear that we can preserve our own identity and become something. I know this because when I'm afraid, I try to remind myself, I mean, I try to remind others that I'm pretty awesome, right? That I, I've been to some pretty awesome schools. I've got these degrees. I supervise the country, right? <laughs> that you don't actually know who I am. I'm pretty awesome. I try to remind others of that, right? I'm not a nobody. I'm a somebody. That's my anti-humility. And Paul reminds us, when our attitude is the attitude of Jesus, we know who we are because our identity rests in God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who breathed breath into us. Grasping is not the way of the cross. It isolates us. In Philippians 2, it says the one who could grasp equality with God because he was God doesn't. He chooses humility. Jesus humbles himself like a servant, even to the point of death. Humility is a thing that connects us. Humility is a downward descent that causes us to give up all that we cling to and rest in the one who has called us and is certain of that call. Humility is the descent that will take us to death, to the rock bottom, where we see who our creator is, where we're reminded of when I was in college, I was the quintessential perfectionist, and that probably still exists today. I thought that if I had the opportunity to acquire all of this leadership opportunity to make myself stand out from everyone else, that if I were to leave an impact on the university and to be remembered, that this is what it meant to be successful, right? This is common. I think this is what we teach college kids to do, right? Change the world, chase success, make lots of money, make your family proud. 
What I would learn is that living for the applause or success would not actually be fulfilling. It was actually depressing for me, right? The more that I had, the more success I acquired, the deeper I dug myself into a depression because it was never enough. And when I became a Christian, I felt like I had to experiment with it. Like maybe success plus Jesus plus all these things like works out perfectly. You can have it all. And then I learned that in Jesus, we don't have to chase success. The call is for us to humble ourselves, to take the low seat, to be a servant, even if it doesn't add any value to us. That is the way of Jesus. So humility, downward descent, even to the point of death. But what I also love about this passage is that after death, we Christians know that there are more. There is more. We know that death, while it appears to be the end, is not death at all. We know that Jesus was crucified. He died and was buried. And then on the third day, he was raised from the dead by the Father. Philippians 2 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. This is a beautiful picture of what happens after death. It's resurrection. It's exaltation of Christ. I've often heard this passage used to say that God rewards our humility by rewarding us with power and authority, right? That humility is a strategy for advancement. I once heard a preacher preach that this is what Joseph from Genesis got right, is that he humbled himself and then was elevated. And that's what this passage is about. That is not what this passage is about, right? There is never, and in this passage, there is not a reward. There's not a promise of a reward. What it does say is that humility leads to death, right? That's all we actually have control over. And we have to remember that Jesus's death was a gruesome one. That the one who came to seek and save the lost was put to death like a thief and a robber. He was wounded and bruised for the ones he came to save. And he didn't even have to do it. On all accounts, when he was taken off that cross and buried, we all thought the story was done. Right? We thought the story was over. But therefore, right, consequently, the Lord raised him up from the dead. So when we follow Jesus, we will die like Christ. But the good news is that in the end, we will be raised with I'm always convicted when I stumble across the words of Gandhi, right? I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. The church looks just like the world grasping for power and success and money. We don't look really different. You can't tell that we're followers of Jesus. So what do we do as we reflect upon Philippians 2? I believe that the call here in Philippians 2 is that we are to live out a self-sacrificing kind of love. And this means death, right? It's like, I usually write un slash fortunately, like it's like fortunately and unfortunately, the life and the way of Christ leads to death. It means forsaking the things that give us comfort and returning to our first love. 
In 2 Corinthians 4, which might be one of my favorite passages, Paul says it here beautifully. Therefore, we do not lose heart because though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but, it, but on what is unseen, since what is temporary, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. When we choose to go the way of the cross, when we choose the way of humility, the way of death, the Holy Spirit brings us to life day after day after day, even when it looks like we're dying. We fix our eyes on Jesus, who was the greatest example of humility. Humility even unto death knowing that our choice to go the way of the cross has deep impact on us, on our community, and in this world. Who would we be if we acknowledge Christ over all, knowing that in the end, all things are subject to him, that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus? How would we respond to our fears and our desires? How would the church respond to the brokenness of the world, let alone the brokenness of our city? Instead of trying to acquire power, strength, and money, we would lay it before the Lord and cling to humility and weakness. This week, when you're frustrated or afraid, when you're stuck, I encourage you not to grab or grasp. Live into the posture of humility, of self-sacrifice. Open your hands, open your arms, Embrace God's call and claim on your life, that that is true now and always has been true and will continue to be true. Let go of the fear. This is a posture of letting go. Because ultimately, humility is not weakness. It's not death. That's not the end. Humility is the life-giving way of the cross. Jesus, thank you that you are a God who illustrates what it means to be humble, humble even to the point of death. Would you teach us that, that we would not grasp at power, at money, at success, that we would not try to make a name for ourselves or seek that which is not ours, but would we lay it down before your cross, knowing that you are a God who is faithful and just, and that even though we might be suffering, that you are giving us life day in and day out. So help us to hold these things loosely before you and to ask how we can serve one another, how we can love one another, and how we can make your joy. In Jesus' name.